This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. You know, some of these breweries that are doing NA products have, have really developed their own niche. What advice would you have for a craft brewer that wants to get into this process? This week on the show, Mitch Steele has advice for brewers who want to produce non-alcoholic products. Hi, my name is Mitch Steele. I'm the brewmaster at New Realm Brewing Company. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. You mentioned at the at the Brewing Summit that people are more tight-lipped about NA beer production. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, sure. I you know, it's it's interesting because I've been researching this a bit and and just to, uh, you know, put this out there at the beginning of the talk here where we have a vacuum distillation system at our brewery in Virginia Beach. And, and so, um, but when I was putting together this presentation, um, I reached out to a whole bunch of people and did a lot of internet um searching and and one of the things that i found out that i thought was really interesting is you know by and large craft brewers share a lot of information with each other they're not not uh timid about sharing their successes their failures what went right what went wrong what to avoid um with the na category or subcategory that that's a little bit different there's a lot of proprietary uh, techniques and, and technology out there that people are using, or at least they're saying it's proprietary. And, you know, by and large, those folks don't want to talk about it too much in in the general brewing public. It's a little sad, huh? Yeah, I you know, I get it. I, I think that's kind of as this industry matures, that's kind of where it's going because things are getting so competitive. And, you know, some of these breweries that are doing NA products have, have really developed their own niche and, you know, they're not looking to welcome any competition there. Um, you know, I think with beer, there's still plenty of room for everybody. And, and you know, by and large, most craft brewers want 
other craft brewers to be successful and to just raise the bar on beer across the board. And I understand, Mitch, uh, correct me if I have this wrong, but you have experience with NA going all the way back to O'Doul's in the 90s, right? (laughs) That is correct. Um, I worked at uh, the Anheuser-Busch Fort Collins Brewery, and they had uh, an O'Doul's production there. And uh, when I was in corporate brewing and doing new products work, uh, I worked on the O'Doul's Amber project. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I have a little bit of experience. It's been a, been a while, but, uh, uh, you know, one thing that was interesting about Anheuser-Busch is they use two different methods for alcohol removal. So in Fort Collins, and I don't know if they're still doing this or not, but uh, when I was there in the early 90s, they had uh, developed a system that was based on uh, dialysis and, um, you know, with, uh, with permeate and cross flow and all this kind of stuff. And, and that's what they used in Fort Collins. And Columbus was the other brewery that was making O'Doul's at the time, and they had a vacuum distillation system. All right. Um, before we get into process and equipment, uh, let's talk about food safety for NA beer. Um, uh, that's that's an important topic. What do you want to say about that? Yeah, I think it's critically important, especially uh, at the craft brewer level, uh, because by and large, most craft brewers aren't equipped with the equipment to make sure that an NA product is is safe. Uh, and by that, you know, when you look at an NA beer, um, it doesn't have typically, well, it doesn't have the alcohol, number one, which is a, a protective factor against any sort of spoilage. Uh, and typically, it doesn't have the hop components either, uh, just because of the process. And so, when you have a non-alcoholic product, uh, it's going to be more susceptible to microbial problems. And depending on the method you're using to make it, uh, you're going to have more or less risk. And, and we can get into that in a bit. But, you know, I think the, the big takeaway for me is, is I've started to really dive into NA production is, number one, with all of these products, no matter how you make them, you should have pasteurization capability. If you're using um, any sort of arrested fermentation or non-maltose yeast, you, you definitely need uh, pasteurization. And then the other thing is don't plan on serving your NA product on draft, uh, especially if you don't have control over the draft lines. Because one of the things that I've learned through uh, some technical research at the Brewers Association is that the, the spoilage organisms in that you can find in draft lines that can infect NA products specifically uh, can hurt you. You know, they can be pathogenic. And, 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 you know, this is one of those things. Beer has always had that natural protection against pathogens. And so, you know, craft brewers and a lot of brewers don't feel they need to pasteurize, which, you know, is, is a wonderful thing. But, you know, these products... An NA beer is much different in that respect, and and you need to take some protective measures. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so if you're doing sort of that, um, you know, like a um, a cold contact or maltose uh, negative fermentation process, do you consider that that uh, that pasteurizer? You, you just mentioned that it's sort of you know going to be needed for pretty much any method. Is is that really your key investment if you're if you're if you're trying to do a, an arrested fermentation process? 
Yeah, that is the key investment. And, you know, I've seen small breweries that have done it and they, they've, uh, they pasteurize kind of, um, you know, they kind of jerry rig something up, like putting all their cans or all their bottles in the mash tun with a false bottom and running hot water over it and that, and that kind of thing. But I mean, really, you know, you need to have a tunnel pasteurizer. And one thing we should say is, is that flash pasteurization isn't going to do it, uh, because, e- you pick up a lot, uh, it potentially pick up a lot of organisms in the packaging process. So when you flash pasteurize, that happens before packaging. So you could be reinfecting your, your product. Yeah, absolutely. What, what advice do you have for, for brewers who are interested in trying a cold contact or low alcohol yeast process? Well, and, and this comes from a lot of people that are uh, a lot of brewers that are making these products and they were freely giving me some targets, I had been asking them, you know, what advice would you have for a craft brewer that wants to get into this process? Um, the first the first item was make sure you test a lot of yeast strains. There's a lot of um, uh, maltose negative yeast strains that are out there right now. And a lot of these are not traditional beer yeast and so the flavors that you produce during a fermentation or even you know a limited fermentation are going to be different than what you might expect and so you got to do a lot of trials that's probably the big takeaway i i got from talking to people um and then you know when you're when you're putting your recipe together in the brew house, you want to make sure, and this kind of goes for every type of NA production, you want to use low real degree of fermentation brewing processes. And by that, I mean, you want to have a fairly high terminal gravity, um, you know, five to six Plato. And with, with these, um, low alcohol yeast, you don't want to start a heck of a lot higher than that. You want to be, you know, somewhere in between six and eight degrees Plato so that any fermentation you do get is still going to help you keep your alcohol below 0.5%. So there's a lot of different approaches to do this. Um, you know, at Anheuser-Busch, they had a proprietary mashing procedure that utilized very high temperatures. Um, you know, you can use dextrin malts and things like that, but you want to have a, what I would consider a pretty high terminal gravity in, um, in your product, in your work, you know, just, uh, mash it that way, uh, use your brew house to help you out. And I guess, um, there's some folks at the conference were talking about sort of what's referred to as a jump mash process. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah. And that's kind of what Anheuser-Busch was doing. Um, but it was, it involves, you know, mashing in with a very low water to grain ratio and then, and then adding boiling water. Um, and you know, so you get, you get some conversion and then you, you get the temperature up. So you're, you're maximizing, um, the right enzyme activity and and not f- producing a lot of maltose and, and fermentable sugar so you're you're getting a high dextrin content okay okay all right um what else what what else do these folks need to be paying attention to 
So, and I've experienced this one. So, with with an IPA, uh, if you're going to brew an IPA, and a lot of the the NA products that are out there now, the the craft brewed ones are variations of India Pale Ale. Uh, you don't want to use regular hopping on that. And so you want to keep your IBU target in between 20 and 30 because the the beer is not going to have that alcohol strength to help carry the hops. And if you start getting higher than that, uh, that IBU level, you start getting uh, a really unbalanced, unpleasant bitterness. So you want to keep the bitterness fairly low. Um, and then the other thing that that a lot of people are doing is they're just avoiding any sort of flavor or aroma hopping or dry hopping at all until after they they process their beer or their NA product. So that that adds a lot of complexity to the process. But um, for cold contact, it's it's okay. You know, you can you can dry hop with a cold contact uh, or uh, non-maltose yeast and still retain that hop character. The other processes that are used to produce NAs, you're going to have trouble retaining any hop character there. Um, another really interesting thing that I didn't even think about, because you, you've got this limited fermentation and limit on yeast activity, you are not going to see the normal pH drop during fermentation. and to create something that is fairly beer-like and also has a, a minimal amount of antimicrobial activity, uh, you're probably going to have to adjust your pH. And, you know, most people use some sort of acid addition uh, at that stage and, and just try to get the pH down to normal, you know, beer levels, you know, somewhere in that four and a half uh, pH 4.5 area. Makes sense. The other big factor here is that these are not going to be normal fermentation processes with normal fermentation times and all that kind of stuff too, right? So you might have a, a very different um, uh, schedule for these brews. Yeah, it really depends on what yeast you select, but some of the yeast take a long time uh, to even drop a couple of uh, degrees Plato and other yeasts do it very quickly. Again, it kind of goes back to that whole idea of really running a lot of trials on, on these maltose negative yeasts or, um, you know, low alcohol producing yeasts and, and just seeing what works from a timing standpoint and a flavor standpoint, you know, it's, um, you know, I think if you're doing the old school traditional cold contact, it's just a couple of days in the fermenter. But some of these new yeast strains that that brewers are using, it takes a little bit longer to get to the end point. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, let's let's take a look at the alcohol removal methods in a little more detail. So we talked a good bit um, about men membrane filtration back on episode 172. Um, but why don't you give us sort of an overview of what's uh, what's required there? So with membrane filtration, uh, number one, you 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 need to purchase a system, and a lot of the brewing supply houses are are starting to build these, and there's some really nice ones out there. But you want to make sure that you don't just buy a membrane filter off the shelf. You want to design uh, buy one that's designed for brewing beers, meaning it can handle you know, high pressure, it can handle, uh, you know, it's got glycol jacketing and that kind of thing. Um, the one thing with membrane filtration is that it is a fairly expensive 
piece of equipment to buy, uh, but it's not as bad as some of the other methods. Um, from a utility standpoint, and that's always a consideration with any system you're using, you got to understand, uh, you know, these things are energy and water hogs typically. And so you need to build that into the project. Uh, for example, membrane filtrations use a, uh, systems use a lot of water. And so you've got to make sure that you've got an ample supply of water. And then you also don't have any issues with with wastewater. Um, but that's those are the biggest things with membrane filtration. It takes up a lot of space as well. Um, you know, these systems are, are fairly long and narrow, and you might be able to squeeze them into an aisle in your brewery, which is what we were looking at doing when we were looking at this, but uh, you need some space for the equipment. Okay. All right. And how about vacuum distillation? So vacuum distillation, that involves, um, you know, heating the beer up under a vacuum so that the boiling point of alcohol is less than what it would be under atmospheric pressure. And so um, you, you don't have to heat the beer, at, you know, up above 170 degrees Fahrenheit, you can, you know, get away with 95 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit under a vacuum and still remove the alcohol. Uh, because there's a substantial amount of heating and cooling involved in vacuum distillation, not only are you going to have a fairly high water usage, but you're also going to need to look at your glycol and chilling supply. Um, steam is what's used to power these things more often than not. So you need to have uh, an ample supply of, of steam and uh, the electrical requirements. These are pretty complex pieces of equipment that, that require a fair amount of electricity. So, you know, those are, those are kind of the big things to keep in mind if you're looking at going with vacuum distillation. Uh, most vacuum distillation systems also have uh, required deaerated water systems so that you can pull the water off of the uh, and it, you can pull the flavors off of the product um, as it's as some of the flavors evaporate, and then uh, the deaerated water gives you a means to add those flavors back. Coming up, I think it's it's worth considering if you're developing a product look at a lot of different things because sometimes you know the combination of things really works well i'm john bryce and you're listening to the master brewers podcast from the master brewers association of the americas There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time. 
from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com slash MBAA. Brought to you by BSG, who invite you to get funky with Fermentus Saf Brew BR8, the first dry Brett B culture available to brewers. BR8 offers the distinctive flavor of Brett B combined with the shelf stability and consistency of dry yeast. BR8 delivers fruity notes early on, but with aging, the base starts to slap as BR8 brings the funk. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Are you looking to reduce CO2 usage, increase capacity, reduce TPO, or scale up hard seltzer production? The Alpha Laval Aldox has been the industry standard for de-aerated water production for over four decades. Simply plug and play, DA water is available a few minutes after power up and offers lower installation and operating costs than other technologies. Like all of Alpha Laval's brewery modules, Aldox is pre-assembled and pre-tested in our workshop before installation. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your production quality and sustainability goals with Aldox. Visit us at alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Northern Cal meets at Russian River's Windsor Brewery, November 15th. District Milwaukee meets November 17th at Sunshine Brewing Company in Lake Mills. District Ontario meets November 17th at Mill Street Brewery in Toronto. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Thanks for listening to the Master Brewers Podcast. Did you know that Master Brewers offers a wide range of technical resources for breweries of all sizes? Whether you're new to brewing or a seasoned expert, join our community to connect with key players in the profession and stay up to date on the latest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Become a member of Master Brewers with code BEER2022 to save 20% on your membership dues now through December 31st. United We Brew. Now back to the show. Let's look at some of the recipe considerations that are uh, specific to the alcohol removal methods. Um, There's some similarities between the ones we've already talked about, but um, what what would you like to say here? Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, is similar to other methods, you want to use, uh, utilize low RDF brewing. You want to, you want to have a lot of body in the beer when it's done fermenting. So five to six Plato terminal gravity, or maybe even a little bit higher. Um, and then, you know, the hopping considerations are pretty similar to if you're using membrane filtration, uh, you need to make sure you don't go too high on the IBUs. And also you don't really need to dry hop before you run the beer through the system uh, because the hop character is not going to stay in the beer. It's, it's going to all flash off. So, um, you know, what most brewers do and some brewers, there's a lot of mixed practices out here. Uh, Some brewers are continuing to, to, dry hop in the fermenter before the alcohol removal, but they're using different hop products. Um, and then other, other brewers are using a lot of post um, bright hop products uh, to get those hop characters that they want in the beer. 
Um, one of the other things that that I thought was interesting was just the whole idea of using highly flavored malts and and the comment that I got from one brewer is that improves the beeriness of the beer. So, you know, if you're using things like special bee or aromatic malts or something in your base recipe, uh, a lot of that flavor is going to be retained through the alcohol removal process. So you have something that tastes more like beer. Um, and you know, it's, I mean, everybody wants IPAs right now, but I, you know, with any alcohol removal system, a dark beer is going to taste fantastic. It doesn't matter whether it's vacuum distillation or membrane filtration, dark beers just, and and that kind of goes back to that highly flavored malt thing. But, you know, if you're brewing a porter or a stout and you're using black malt or chocolate malt or whatever the case is, those flavors tend to carry through the the alcohol removal process better than than other malt flavors. I keep wondering when Guinness is just going to come out with their NA and like crush everything. Yeah. Right. I you know it's it's interesting. I you know I remember way back in 1996 or 97 when we were thinking about Odul's Amber. And we ran, we were brewing a porter at Anheuser-Busch at the time, which, you know, was unusual uh, enough to begin with. But we ran some of that through the system, I believe it was in Columbus, and brought it back. And it was like, oh my gosh, this this still tastes like the porter. This is wonderful. Do you want to comment on which method or combinations of the combination of, of methods seems to be getting the most traction lately? Yeah, I think for craft brewers, the the maltose negative yeast is where a lot of people are going uh, just because you don't have to buy a uh, an expensive piece of equipment to remove alcohol. You're just not creating it to begin with. Um, and I really see a lot of that happening with, with the smaller brewers. Um, you know, some of the larger brewers are using alcohol removal systems. And, you know, one of the things that I, I don't have a lot of experience with, but uh, that I picked up in, in doing my research is, is people are using a blend of the two methods. So they may be using a maltose negative yeast, but, you know, if their alcohol is a little bit too high still, then they run it through some sort of membrane filtration. Then the load on the membrane filter is less because there's not that much alcohol to start with. Um, but, and you may retain more, more beer character because you're not pushing so much through those, those membranes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was really interesting and something that I think is worth exploring. Absolutely. Um, I guess, um, how important do you think it is to be adding flavor back into beer after dealcoholization? I, you know, honestly, I think that's kind of the key to making the product really taste like beer. And I, you know, it's, I, at the great American beer festival, actually it was at world beer cup. I judged a round of NA beers and they were so good. And I, I was tasting through them and I said, none of these taste cooked. They taste like beer. They have that ester profile. Um, I do think, you know, when you remove the alcohol, you're going to lose a lot of that. So finding a way to get those back in, whether it's recovering them off your system uh, or, or buying something from a supplier that, that will help. Um, I think it's really, really important. Uh, I don't have enough experience with the with the cold contact or the maltose negative yeast to to understand whether adding 
you know, products, hot products or, or some sort of uh, beer flavor or anything like that, whether it's actually uh, more important there or less important there. But I know with, with alcohol removal, um, you need to find a way to bring some of that flavor back into the product. And, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of companies, a lot of companies out there are making natural beer flavors and a lot of different types of uh, post uh, bright hop products that, that are easy to add. And I think, I think that's what most people are doing to help make the end product taste like beer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you mentioned that you are, that you, that you have a system in Virginia beach. Um, so, so you guys are producing some NA products there, I assume. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of like what that decision process looked like in terms of like how you ended up with the the type of system that you that you did end up with? Um, uh, I think that would be interesting for folks to hear. Yeah, actually, we had very little to do with it. So just in full disclosure, that that system is owned by another brewer and we are making the product for them. Okay. Um, and so they already had their equipment selected um, and they paid to install it. And you know, they've given us the option to brew some of our own products on it if we want to, provided we don't interrupt or uh, disrupt their production requirements. So, so they had already um, picked this system and um, paid to have it installed and, and everything else. So we didn't have a lot uh, of input into that except for just dealing with the project management side of it. And you know, I, I will say that, uh, you know, if I had to go through this process, um, I would look very hard at membrane filtration uh, just because I think uh, I, the beers that I've tasted that use membrane filtration really, really taste pretty good and taste like beer. Um, and the utilities requirements are not the same as they are for vacuum distillation. Um, and, and I think the vacuum distillation system, you know, the, it, it works really well. And if you're able to add back the volatiles that are, that are flashed off during the alcohol removal process, if you can invest in that part of the system, then you don't have to worry so much about any sort of cooked flavor. And, and that's always been the rub on vacuum distillation is, you know, even though you're, you're heating the, the beer to a much lower level, you're still heating the beer. And so there are some flavor changes that happen during that process. You know, uh, Mitch, I've been trying to get uh, Willem from Heineken to come on the show, uh, but I don't think we're going to get him. Uh, you and I were both in the room for his presentation and the tasting of both Heineken and Heineken Zero Zero uh, in, in Providence. Uh, what did you think about all that? Well, I was really impressed. Uh, number one, Willem is great. I, you know, he's he's a great speaker. He certainly is uh, very well versed in in everything about beer and non-alcoholic beer. But uh, I had never had Heineken Zero before, yeah, and I was uh, I was knocked out by it. I thought it was absolutely amazing, and I, you know, I actually had one at lunch that day just because I enjoyed Dang. it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so I, I, they're doing something, you know, and Heineken's one of those companies that has a lot of resources and can develop technologies a lot more than than smaller brewers can, and I think they've they've nailed it with this one. Do you want to talk, um, I think it would be interesting, uh, obviously we can't, you know, go through the whole thing like Willem did, but um, um, I I thought it was really interesting just the way he laid out how, you know, they really weren't trying to, um, to, to, 
you know, to replicate Heineken exactly, um, but sort of trying to, you know, trick your brain into, into filling in the gaps. Right. And so, um, I think, uh, and then, you know, we, we, we tasted, you know, uh, there was this discussion about which, which one you taste first, whether you taste the, the alcohol free version before or after and, and sort of like how all that unfolded and, and how it was perceived. Why don't you uh, describe some of that to listeners? Cause I think that was, um, I thought that was fascinating. Um, I, I remember it being fascinating too. And I'm trying to remember, you know, the tasting part of that and then tasting them in different orders. Um, I, you know, I, and and correct me if I, I get this wrong, but I think we tasted the NA product first. And then when we tasted the beer product, it was super intense, right? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think what, the way he described it was like, if you have the NA first and then you try the regular, uh, the regular tastes like it has a shot of vodka in it. You know, it's like, that's it's right. That's, right. that's exactly what he said. And, 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 it, <laughs> and it does, you know? Yeah. And uh, um, so it's, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, I think that's like one of the, the the most disappointing things about NA beer for me because I w- I would really like to be able to drink NA beer like you know have a couple of regular beers and but and you want to keep drinking but you don't want the alcohol and you know then you then you want the NA right and the the downside is if you do that uh and, and we we went through that with the Heineken like if you take if you drink a bunch of Heineken and then you switch to the NA it's 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 gonna be a little bit of a letdown. It's gonna taste kind of watery and you know grainy and like not you know it's not gonna taste quite right. But if you just have a a an A one you know without drinking anything else you know right before it, your brain's gonna be like yeah this is Heineken you know yeah. Uh, so I thought that was just really cool and really interesting. I mean it's it's a it's a very big challenge to to try to solve you know to uh, whether you're trying to you know, flavor match a, a product or just create something unique. Um, you know, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, it is interesting. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the key point there is, is not trying to replicate a beer you're already making, just try to make the best, most beer flavored type of NA product you can. I, yeah. you know, it's, I thought that was, that was a key takeaway for me from from his talk and you know looking back at some of the na beers i've been involved with over the years i can see that that's pretty much what we were trying to do we weren't trying to replicate anything you know there's there's a reason um you know it took a long time for anheuser-busch to call a beer uh an na product you know budweiser you know right. it's it's just it, it it's a very different taste and a very different flavor you know at least in the days when i was involved with it and um and I think I think he's he's right on. I think going back and forth is kind of tough. Uh, mm-hmm. To your point, I think if you start off with beer and have one or two, and then decide you don't want to have any more alcohol, it's probably going to take you uh, three quarters of a bottle to to, to recalibrate. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but and that's okay if it tastes good. It's that's all right. Um, yeah. But, you know, I remember taking uh, when when I was with Stone and we were building uh, the brewery in Richmond, Virginia, we were using an equipment manufacturer in Germany. And so we traveled over to Germany several times and I got to try a lot of the N.A. beers in Germany. And I tell you, an N.A. Hefeweizen is it tastes like Hefeweizen. It was I, you know, it was that was the first time I had tasted an N.A. beer and said, this tastes like beer. This is really good. 
any final words of wisdom or tips to inspire those looking to make the next really good NA product? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of companies out there, uh, suppliers that are doing some really interesting things with flavors and, you know, they're, they're extracting terpenes and other types of, you know, beer compounds from other ingredients and, you know, if you're a brewer and you're thinking about making an NA product, I don't think you should limit yourself to strictly hop extracts and things like that when you're adding back. Um, there, you know, most you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck if you're using hop derived compounds. But there are some other new things out there that are worth a shot, maybe just in a small dose. I, I you know, using, um, you know, if you're trying to get a, a stone fruit hop character in your beer, using a little bit of product that's derived from apricots or peaches might work for you. And so I think it's it's worth considering if you're developing a product, look at a lot of different things because sometimes, you know, the combination of things really works well. And, you know, when you're using just hop oils or, or some sort of post bright hop product, you know, you can tend to get pretty resiny with it. And, and you got to be careful and sometimes augmenting that with something else uh, that softens that part of the flavor profile really helps. That was Mitch Steele here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you didn't get a chance to catch up with Mitch over a Heineken 00 in Providence, maybe try again at the next big Master Brewers conference. That's October 6th through the 8th, 2023 in Courage. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.